If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 5. We are, we, uh, we're going to dig into something last week that uh, I felt like needed more digging. Um, last week I just felt like, uh, I felt like that last part, the Lord just was really saying, hey, you went through that too fast. You need to go back and, and drive a little slower. And, uh, and, and so um, I, I said, okay. <laughs> I told the Lord, okay, we'll do that. So we're going to be in Luke 5. We're going to finish out that chapter this week. And, uh, and uh, we're, we're really moving into the, the Lenten season, which is really important in the church calendar. It's a time of renewal. And we're praying for renewal, aren't we? It's a time when we learn about our, uh, you know, our brokenness. It's a time when we remember God's goodness. It's a time that we remember how dependent we are upon Him for everything. So this is a great season in the life of the church, and that's why we practice Lent as a church. So um, we will be having an Ash Wednesday service this Wednesday, so we'd love to have everyone come to that as we really contend for the gospel together. Um, so many of you have seen uh, the discipleship pathway that we've put out, and if you haven't, I can email you a copy of this. But, uh, but, but one of the things I've been really pressed lately with is as I have, I work with other churches, and I've, and, and I've pastored other places before, and something the Spirit has just really stirred me on, and I, I, I guess I find myself really restless about this, is I started thinking back on all the churches I've pastored in, and I started thinking back on the churches that I, that I work with in, con, in a consulting and counseling sort of a role. And, um, and, and I realized that there are very few Christians in our churches that, I mean, and I work, you know, working in a lot of places, there are very few Christians who are really reaching true maturity in Christ. And that breaks my heart. It breaks my heart as a pastor. It breaks my heart as somebody who really wants to see God move. It breaks my heart when I realize how much seed God has sown into the American church. I mean, how many of us have 10 copies of the Bible in our house? And, 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 and we, you know, maybe we listen to multiple sermons a week. I don't know if you, if you guys are like me, but like I got the podcasts loaded, you know? Uh, I listen to sermons. I listen to, to other podcasts where they talk about the Bible and ministry and culture. Um, I'm just inundated with the truth, and I know a lot of us are that way, and yet I know very few Christians who are really practicing a mature walk with the Lord. And I'm not saying that, like, I'm not looking across this room being like, "That's uh, you guys." I'm not. I'm not pointing anybody out with that. Um, that. That's now, if the Lord is pointing that out in you, then that's between you and Him. But I'm not pointing that out. Um, but, but. We have laid out sort of some stages of discipleship, and there's the beginning stage, which is really step one in your journey, and that's, you know, you've received Christ, right? You've been baptized. You've joined the local church. Um, those things are really important, but then there's a stage two, which is a growing disciple, and that's, we, we've, we've identified that, that some traits of a growing disciple are you have a daily devotional life. You have a walk with the Lord. You read your Bible. You pray on a regular basis. Um, you've got, you regular, regular, regularly attend the Sunday gathering with the local church. You participate in some kind of small group life. You've got some people that you answer to, you know, who, who are really in your life. Those are some traits of a growing disciple. But then a maturing disciple takes it to the next level. And, and this is somebody who's really beginning to practice spiritual discipline in their life. And, and they're really growing up in the Lord. And, uh, and they may be doing some leadership. They may lead a, lead a discipleship group or something. There's all kinds of things. There are different, different paths we take in the, you know, within these different areas. But I'm pointing this out for one reason. It's because I, I, uh, 
I was just bothered by realizing that I haven't seen too many people in my life who really get beyond stage two, and actually very few of us are in stage two. A lot of us are teetering between stage one and stage two, and, and I think God wants more. I just think he wants more. I, I think he, he has given us more and uh, has really sown great seeds into us. And so uh, I want to encourage us in something. I'm mentioning that because that's a specific thing to our church. One thing that God really spoke to me about over the past year is that we have to be more intentional about making disciples and helping people see how they can move from one level to another level in discipleship. Because Paul, Paul in Colossians named the, the, uh, the purpose of his ministry— and can I just say, if the, if the Apostle Paul says, this is why I do ministry, then maybe we should listen to what the Apostle Paul said, because he was really tight with the Lord. You know what I mean? He was an apostle. He was, he was given that responsibility because it was his job to give a charge down to the churches, specifically the Gentile churches. And I don't know about you guys, but that, I'm in that category. Okay, I'm a, I'm a Gentile believer. I, I know my family has this, like, this uh, British, you know, Scottish, English, Welsh sort of background. There's a little German in there. There's, uh, we're like a European mutt type deal, you know what I mean? Um, and, and we got all this going on, and, and, and uh, so we're Gentile. I know that. Uh, we've been grafted into the faith by the Holy Spirit, you know, and so, so um, Paul gave us a, a specific, a particular charge and what he said his ministry consists of is presenting everyone mature in Christ. Presenting everyone mature in Christ. So what that means is we shouldn't be okay with mediocre or just walking with Jesus a little bit. We shouldn't be satisfied until we're walking with Jesus completely. And walking entirely in his strength and not in our own. But so many are just satisfied with just, just a little bit of Jesus. And I don't think that's how God wants this church to be defined. Listen, we, we, we don't have all the bells and whistles. Uh, we don't. We're, we, we, we don't have smoke machines. We don't have a big auditorium. Um, some people would look at some of those things and would say, well, you know, you, you don't have as, as many resources, but I'm going to tell you what we have. We, we're exactly who God wants us to be. God has called us to be a church to contend for the gospel, to pursue him with everything that we are, and to be a church of mature disciples who are producing mature disciples. I think that's really clear. That's why we're here. We're here to elevate the level of discipleship and to contend. And so... Um, you know, that's, that's, that's just an important thing for us to have our minds on as we look into this word in Luke chapter 5. And we're specifically focusing on 33 through 39 of this passage today. And so it's going to be kind of more of a detailed look at these verses. But let's go ahead and read these verses. Then they said to him, John's disciples fast often and say prayers, and those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, You can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will, uh, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will spill, and the skins will be ruined. No, no new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And 
No one after drinking the old wine wants the new because he says the old is better. Let's, let's take a look at this in a little more detail. Last week we kind of glanced over it, but we're going to look at it in some detail this week because I think it's important. And I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, and, and tell you what I think God's dream is that we see in this. The core desire of God's heart, okay? A core desire, one of the most important things to God, is that we would embrace his new reality and seek to live in it through Christ. That we would embrace his new reality and that we would seek to live in it through Christ. Okay? And, and, and we need to admit right off the bat that we cannot do it on our own strength. We can't. Uh, and and I, I, I imagine that's why a lot of people in our world, a lot of even church people, a lot of faithful church people really struggle with the Christian life because we're, oftentimes I think we find ourselves trying to do the Christian thing in our own strength. We're not relying on the Holy Spirit. We're not walking by the Spirit. And that's the promise in Galatians 5. Walk by the Spirit, Paul says, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He doesn't say that, you know, you've... Uh, do all the churchy things and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He's really clear that it's actually a relationship with God, a, a constant walking by the Spirit that is the key to a victorious and mature Christian life. And that is different than what most people are raised up thinking. Have you guys ever read the book, The Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens? Anyone ever read that book uh, or watched the movie? I'm sure there are probably many movie adaptations. Man, just one of the greatest novels ever written. I love this book. But the book focuses uh, in the beginning on, it's a story of Dr. Alexandre Manette. And uh, Manette is a, Dr. Manette is a French man who has been imprisoned in the infamous Bastille prison for 18 years. 18 years in this horrible place. He was a political prisoner. And, uh, and while he is in the Bastille, he, he just loses his mind. As you can imagine, it was, uh, I mean, we think it would be bad to be in prison here. I mean, I think some of those guys in America get TV. You know, like, uh, this, this was not a good place to be in prison. You were in a dark, dank cell, and it was just... The conditions were horrible. And, uh, and so um, Dr. Manette, even though he was just a very brilliant man, uh, he, he, his mind broke down, and uh, he had learned to make shoes in prison, and so he became an, an obsessive, compulsive shoemaker. And he couldn't do anything but make shoes. It got his mind off of what he was doing, and he just, that's, that's what he did. And then, so when he gets out of prison, and he's awaiting to be picked up by his daughter, uh, all he can do, even in his freedom, is make shoes. He's just obsessed with making shoes. And, uh, and, and in fact, he doesn't even recognize his own daughter. Of course, he'd never actually met her because he went into prison the year she was born. But, uh, but, but after a little while of her just trying to get, a, get, get his attention and, and trying to love on him, he starts to recognize that she looks like his late wife, who was her mother, and, uh, and, and he ends up going with her. But even after traveling with her, they go to London where they're free, you know, and they don't have to worry about the crazy French people uh, who were after the, um, Dr. Manette. But, uh, but while they're there, and that's why it's the tale of two cities, by the way, London, Paris, London, Paris. Okay, um, so, but, uh, but while they're in London, um, slowly through the love of his daughter, Dr. Manette starts to come back. 
because she loves him and she continues to pursue him. And even though he's crazy and all he wants to do is make shoes, she loves him. And after a while, the good doctor returns. He comes out of his shell. He, he stops obsessive, obsessively, compulsively making shoes. And, uh, and he, he just begins to be a good dad. And he starts to build this relationship with his daughter that he'd missed out on all these years. And it's a really a beautiful story. Uh, that The first part of the book is actually called uh, Recalled to Life. It's a very Christian concept of having been dead and being called back to life, right? Resurrection's a big theme in Christianity, isn't it? Yes. So it wasn't until the doctor had truly realized that he had a new and better reality that he was freed from the old reality, which he had held on to for so long. Sometimes we have to get used to the new thing before we can really let go of the old. We find ourselves sort of with one foot in one world and another foot in the other world. And that, I think, is the struggle that we face as Christians. You know, we may do really well for a while walking the road, walking the narrow path of Jesus. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves stepping back on the highway to hell. Um, yeah, not just an ACDC song, the real thing. You know what I mean? So uh, we, but, but not to say that we're headed towards hell, but because but, I, I believe if you're in Christ, he's, he's, he's drawing you, right? He's got you, and the Bible says that those who, who persevere till the end will be saved. So the Spirit is working with you, and he wants to keep you on the right road. But we struggle. We, we bend the wrong direction. The Spirit grabs a hold of us, pulls us back over. Anybody feel that way? Huh? I'm on that road. I've had many moments where the Lord had to grab a hold of me and say, hey, Get back over here, you know? So in this passage, we see Jesus laying out the case for the new life, essentially. And, uh, and I think the good doctor's story is, is something that we can connect to. Because uh, there are times throughout the book where he returns to his shoemaking whenever something traumatic happens. And it's almost like, he, well, I know about making shoes. And he goes back over and he starts until they finally destroy his shoemaking table because they're like, no, you're not doing that anymore. Um, would it be, wouldn't it be good for all of us if the Lord just destroyed our shoemaking table? You know, like completely eliminated the, the desire for sin out of our heart. And so we never go back to that road. I think he does want to do that for us. That's what the Spirit does when He fills us with His presence. And He does that in increasing measure throughout our lives. Um, so God's core desire, we're going to identify this. Again, His desire is that we would embrace the new way that we have in Christ. And we would learn to live in that way rather than returning to the old way. Right? Embrace who we are in Christ. Embrace the love and stop making shoes, okay? Um, that's what he's looking for from us. Jesus is making everything new. Our problem often is that we are naturally nostalgic for the old dead way, and that's not healthy for us. Now, why are we naturally nostalgic for the old dead way? Well, because we are, as Paul said, dead in our sins and trespasses in our father Adam. Now, we've been given new life in Christ, but again, we still sometimes struggle with the flesh because we are living in the body, right? So the flesh, according to the Bible, is just another way of saying human nature. We struggle with the human nature. Even though we've been given a new nature in Christ, we still struggle with the human nature. And really, the Bible says it's a lifelong journey. Paul writes in Philippians that even he, the apostle who was writing Scripture, did not have it all figured out yet. 
But he was looking forward to the day when Christ would complete the work in him. And he's going to complete the work in you too, if you're in Christ. But I think we can take steps towards being a little stronger in the way that we live every day. So let's discover this a little bit. Let's discover what are the challenges arisen or lifted up or revealed to us in this passage. What are the challenges? I saw really three specific challenges that, I, that, that at least were, were apparent to me in this passage for this week that I think the Lord wants us to talk about. And one of them is that uh, we tend to think of change as purely mechanical. Now let's talk about that for a minute because that's what the Pharisees, their reaction to Jesus reveals this. And this is something we struggle with today too. So they come to Jesus and they're like, now hang on, Jesus, we, uh, we fast a lot. It's interesting that we're approaching the, the Ash Wednesday fast and uh, we have a question about fasting. You realize that Jesus never actually commanded a fast other than the Day of Atonement. But, he, but his disciples did fast and he himself fasted. So there's an example of, of a fast, but we also need to remember that fasting in the Christian, in the Christian life is fasting from grace. We're fasting out of grace rather than fasting out of legalism, okay? If you approach a fast out of legalism, you shouldn't fast, right? So, because, if, because it will actually hurt your faith more than it will help it. You have to be able to approach it knowing, hey, I'm doing this simply out of the love of God and wanting to grow closer to him, not to try and get something out of God. Sometimes we come to a fast like a bribe, and we're like, hey, God, I'm fasting, so you better give me what I want. It's like we're holding it over him. If that's your heart in fasting, don't do it, okay? You're better off not doing it. But we, we come, so, but that's what the Pharisees did. That was the way they fasted. So they, 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 they came and they said, hey, look, Jesus, we're, 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 we fast and we do all these great things and we're, we're, uh, we're, really, we're really doing the right things here, but, but why don't you do the things that we do? And, uh, and, and Jesus, he just wasn't having it. <laughs> um, one, he, he, they didn't realize who he was. He says, hey, I'm the, I'm the bridegroom. <laughs> okay, it's party time. I'm here, you know? And so... He wanted them to know, you know, fasting is typically something that you do uh, whenever you need to overcome something or whenever you, you, you really just want to grow closer to the Lord. And Jesus is like, yeah, I'm already here. <laughs> My disciples are hanging out with me. So you can't, get clo- you can't get closer to God than being with Jesus in his presence. But he, but he realized they were approaching it legalistically. It was law to them. It wasn't grace. And he wasn't going to play by that rule. So when we act that way about our spiritual disciplines, we, we are thinking in our minds that change is something that is just mechanical. If I do all the right things, then, then the, the change will come. Or if I do all the right things, then God has to give me this. Instead of, you know what? God's gracious and good, and I know he's going to give me this because my good father gives me good gifts. But I want to grow closer to him. So that's why I have spiritual discipline in my life. I want to train my heart to love him more than the things of this world. That's what spiritual disciplines are really about. But if we approach them in the wrong way, they hurt our faith. In fact, when we approach them in the mechanistic sort of way, like it's a machine, if I do this, this, and this, it's going to pop out this result. Then what happens is it keeps us from embracing the new reality that we have in Christ because it takes the emphasis off of Christ and what he has done and puts it back on us and what we can do. And that's the old way. The old way is about me. How can I overcome? How can I make myself better? By the way, this sounds really familiar because this is the way of the world. That's why you walk into any bookstore and like the first thing you see is like a bajillion self-help books that are like, you can do it. And the gospel says, no, you can't. 
And until you realize, no, you can't, you never will. Because it is only the power of the Spirit in you that can overcome your human nature that is keeping you from getting over the hill. We have to let go and let God. That's a cliche statement, but I don't care. It's a good one. We let go and we let God. It's the only way to overcome. You want to be an overcomer, you have to walk by the Spirit. And the emphasis cannot be you or me, and it is not a mechanical process. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. So we want to grow closer to Him so that we can receive more of Him so that He can work in us, and then that works through us. It's really important for us to recognize that process. So um, the Pharisees had bought into the idea they could discipline themselves, educate themselves, and beat themselves into holiness. I've met a lot of Christians who are that way too. That's why I'm saying this is not an old problem. This is a current problem. This is something that we struggle with in the church today and in the world today. And we like to give the Pharisees a hard time, don't we? We do. I, I always hear people, you know, hating on the Pharisees. But, well, man, those guys over there, everybody likes to be able to say that person over there. They never want to say me, you know. Um, but, uh, but the Pharisees, we want, to, we want to hate on them. But the biggest problem they have is that they thought of change, like we said, more of a mechanism than a miracle work of the Holy Spirit. And so these same ideas that dominated them continue to dominate our culture today. I have this quote from Dallas Willard, which I really love. He wrote, we have the Christian left. This is important because he's talking about the left now. A lot of us here are on the right. So we would tend to look at the left and be like, yeah, look at those guys and what they're doing. Okay, we want to we poke at them. But he says the Christian left, after all, just another gospel is just another gospel of sin management. Now, sin management is when we're, we're just trying to keep it under control deep down inside, right? But in, and what he's saying is no matter where, what your Christian background is, whether you're, you're sort of a, a theological liberal or a conservative, we are all just trying to manage sin in ourselves much of the time. And it doesn't work. Because if we're just trying to manage sin, we never get down to the heart of the problem and it's that we're dead in our sins and trespasses. So we can't overcome because managing sin isn't good enough. We actually need sin to be completely eliminated. So what he says that on, on the left, so on the right side, we probably have, you know, these, these lists of religious rules that we try to follow. On the left side, he says what it is instead is it's, um, it's substance is provided by Western social and political ideas of human existence in a secular world. So it's like, do you measure up to these worldly standards? Are you tolerant? Do you have social justice in your, in your DNA? Do you, are you, uh, do you accept people who are uh, opposed to, uh, who are uh, living an alternative lifestyle? So these are different rules, right? But if you don't measure up, then like, you know, you're a bigot. <laughs> so bummer, you know? Um, but, but on the other side of it, it's the same thing. We struggle with, hey, you know, we, we, we have our list of things. Well, did I go to church this week? Well, did I, did I pray? Oh, good, I prayed at my meal. Um, did, I, did I, you know, was, was, we, have, we have our lists. I remember when I was a kid in Sunday school, we would get stickers, maybe a gold star if you, if you were in Sunday. And I'm not saying those things are bad. I mean, it's not wrong to reward people for doing good things. But, but when we start making it law rather than grace, it's a problem. We have to understand that it's, we can't just manage sin by putting all the external factors in the right place. We have to have the heart change. So let's not treat it like a mechanism. That's the problem. Um, so another challenge that we face is that we often misrepresent Jesus' new way as just an improved or better version of the old. 
In verse 36 uh, through 38, Jesus starts talking about putting a new cloth on an old garment or putting new wine into old wineskins. I, I spent a lot of time meditating on this this week because I really wanted to get to the heart of what was Jesus saying. And, and I just, like, this is a pretty new shirt. You know, this is a shirt that I've gotten in uh, recently. And if I were to take this, but this, again, uh, uh, JCPenney's was having a clearance. So what do you do? Um, so um, if I were to take this and tear a piece off, and then let's say I would go sew it on one of my old flannels, which are so comfortable, by the way. Um, but, but, but if I were to do that, now, wouldn't that look silly? First of all, would the flannel look funny with a blue patch on it? Um, well, it's not going to match. And that's what Jesus is saying. He says, first of all, it's the, the new doesn't match the old. But even worse, you've just ruined the new because you tore it. This is an interesting picture, isn't it? What Jesus is saying to us is that if we try and act like we can do the new within the framework of the old, we actually ruin the new covenant by trying to do it in an old covenant way. And at the same time, we make our religion look really silly because the patch doesn't fit anyway, doesn't match. And then, and then the whole idea of new wine, right? Like he's, he's like, well, you, you don't put new wine in old wineskins because new wine expands and it's going to burst the skins. And what have you done? You've spilled out the new wine because you tried to put it in the wrong vessel and you've ruined the old vessel all at the same time. It's all broken. It's all messed up. It doesn't work. So in the same way as before, now when we, when we, try, when we misrepresent Jesus' new way as an, just an improved version of the old, right? It's just the same old religion reinvented, someone might say. Yeah, that we, we often misrepresent Jesus' new way as just an improved or better version of the old. Um, it's just like the other. We're, we're taking the emphasis off of Christ and we're putting it on us. Anybody see a pattern developing here? <laughs> so removing the emphasis off Christ, putting it on us. Because... We humans, we like, we like the old religion. We do. Now, you may be sitting here saying, well, no, we're, we're, not, we're not like temple Jews or anything like that. We're not like, we're not like traditionalists like that. But you know what we do like is we like having control over our own spiritual development, or at least thinking that we have control over our own spiritual development. Because, see, the nice thing about the old-style religion is it's, it's very comforting because I know if I put a quarter in, I'm going to get a Coke out. <laughs> you know? At least we think that's how it works. And we mentioned that earlier, that the mechanistic way of thinking doesn't really work because you need the Holy Spirit. It doesn't work perfectly like that. It's like you, don't put, you put a deposit in, you don't necessarily get the right return. Because it's only by the Spirit that that can possibly happen. Um, Tim, and this is, this is a great, you know, so to think that Christianity is a better, evolved, or repaired version of an old garment is not treating Christianity fairly. Because Christianity is not just another religion. It's the true religion. It's the right religion. Um, it's, it's the only right way that, put, that takes the emphasis off of us, and off of people, and puts the emphasis back on God. It's, and the best way I can maybe explain this is if we're, if we're living in the old way, it's almost like we're dreaming, and our dream is the new way, 
but it doesn't feel quite real. And then at some point, God flips that and teaches us, wait a minute, no, the dream world was actually the real world the whole, the whole time. So when you wake up, you're actually in the dream, and you find out the dream was real. Is that a weird picture? It reminds me of The Matrix. I don't know if anybody's ever seen that movie. But, uh, but if you haven't seen the movie, you won't get the reference. But that's okay. Um, but, but, but at some point, we wake up in the reality, right? That's what the Spirit does. He, he flips on that new reality in us. You know, I'm going to read this. Uh, this is from Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. He says, in, in the Christian understanding, Jesus does not tell us how to live so that we can merit salvation. Now, that's the world's way. Here's how you live. Here's, here's all the things you got to do so that you'll be accepted, whether accepted by the world or accepted by whatever God you worship or in, in a lot of Christian sense, be accepted by the Christian God. We think we're living a certain way to receive his acceptance. Um, Jesus doesn't tell us how to live so that we can earn, we can merit salvation. Rather, he comes to forgive and save us through his life and death in our place. God's grace does not come to people who morally outperform others, but to those who admit their failure to perform and who acknowledge their need for a savior. That's a radical difference. That is not just the new version of an old religion. It's a new religion. It's fresh. It's true. It's real. You see, what? this is a new thing. And you shouldn't try to tear a little bit off of the new and put it on the old. Or you shouldn't try to take the new and put it in the old form, the wineskins. We need a new form, a new wineskin to fit the new wine. We cannot try to shove the new religion into the old forms. And that's what Jesus wants us to see. No, there's a new way. And that way is to follow Christ and to learn and to walk by the Spirit. Not to rely on what you can do, but to rely on what Christ has done and what he will do through you. It's a huge difference. And I, and I know for some, that's a, that difference is really hard to wrap your mind around because, well, the old way is more natural to us. It's what we were raised up in. It's, you know, Paul calls it the human nature, the flesh, because it's, it's, it's literally how we grew up and we cannot think in any other way unless the Spirit changes our thinking internally. So no matter what we do, we can't change the core of what is broken in us. We can't fix our old heart. We need a new heart, and only the Spirit can give us that. So, so here's the third, the third thing we see in verse 39 is that we tend to trust in ourselves too much and in God too little. And that's where we get to this part about, about you know, people who, who drink the, the old really prefer it to the new. Now why is that? Uh, well, I remember, uh, you know, last week we talked about the Remember we talked about the water? When you move into a new town, the water tastes funny until you've, drunk, until you've been drinking it for a while, then all of a sudden it becomes normal. Well, that's what it is. It's a shock to the system when we move from the old covenant of works to the new covenant of God's grace. Those are important things. Okay, the old covenant of works, which means I am what I do. I am what I do. Or in other words, my being flows out of my doing, okay? That's the old covenant of works. But the new covenant of grace says, I am who Christ says I am. Not I am what I do. I am who Jesus says I am. And so my doing now flows out of my being. That's reversed. I still do. I still work. But I'm working because of who God has renewed me to be. 
I'm not working to try to earn God's favor. I'm working because I have God's favor. And that is a huge difference. In other words, I'm no longer trying to build my own foundation so that I can get to God. But now I build on the foundation of God's grace, which has already been poured for me. It's about faith. And so the temptation we see here in verse 39, where he says, he says, and no one after drinking the old one wants the new because he says the old is better. Our temptation that we wrestle against is to look back at the old way and think, you know what, I kind of prefer that. There's something in my heart that keeps drawing me back to that. And so then we go back. So once again, you know, it's, it's, it's another instance where the emphasis is removed off of Christ and placed back on man. And Christ has called us to put that aside and to pursue him. Since we trust in ourselves and human wisdom so much more than we trust God, uh, the problem is that it's almost impossible for us to overcome that. And once again, as we've said many times today, we need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. So then we need to ask the question, then how can Christ through the Spirit overcome these challenges in me? It's an important question, isn't it? If, we, if I know I have these challenges, I know that, 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 I, that as a human being, I tend to put the emphasis on me rather than on Christ. I know as a human being, I tend to think of spiritual change as mechanical rather than grace. I know as a human being, I tend to, to think of the old and the new as basically sort of the same thing, just like the new is just a new version of the old. Uh, I, I know that as a human, I may find myself, even in Christ, craving the old way because it's the taste I was used to for so long. Then how, how can that be overcome in us so that we can walk in the new light of Christ? Well, uh, I'm going to give you three things. One, he overcomes the first challenge by killing our sin nature and calling us to have faith in Christ. Now this takes the emphasis off of us and puts it squarely onto him. And, and Jesus knew that while spiritual practices and aesthetic, asceticism and all these things have some value, they do not have the ultimate value. So he wants to call us to build on the foundation of his grace rather than to build on the foundation of, of what we think we can accomplish. Jesus said in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. What was he saying? He, he's saying, hey, listen, doesn't matter how clean you are on the outside if you're not cleaned up on the inside. He overcomes the challenge of our, of, of our mechanistic attempts to change by giving us a new heart. He calls us to repent, turn away from our sins, that's what that means, and believe the gospel and receive a new heart through Christ. So he has approached the challenge in that way. So while everyone is out there trying to do better, Jesus is calling us to trust in what he's already done. Big, big difference. He overcomes the second challenge by giving us fresh faith by the Spirit. Okay, so, so if we're misrepresenting uh, Jesus' new way as some kind of like just a new version of the old rather than something entirely new, the Spirit comes to us and he gives us fresh faith so we can see as things truly are. Um, A.W. Tozer wrote that the Spirit 
gave a bright emotional quality to their religion, talking about the first century believers who just received the Spirit. And he says, and I grieve before my God over the lack of this in our day. The emotional quality isn't there. There is a sickliness about us all. We, we pump so hard to get a little drop of daylight, sorry, drop of delight out of our old rusty well. And we write innumerable bouncy choruses and we pump and pump until you could hear the old rusty thing squeak across 40 acres, but it doesn't work. But by supernatural revelation, we begin to see. We begin to see the truth of God's word and that we begin to believe the new reality is truer than the old one so that when we pump and we work and with the Holy Spirit, you see he gives us a new well. So we're not trying to pump out of the old one now. And by the way, the new well has, a, has an electric pump. It has a powered pump, and it's the Holy Spirit, and he draws up for us what we need. The wellspring of life, Jesus called himself. So again, it's not possible for us to get there on our own strength, but, but in Christ, we can get there. And he overcomes the third challenge by renewing our minds through his word. This is critical because I think that, that many of us struggle because we don't have this constant life in the word of God. And, and so once we have faith to believe in the new reality, uh, the, the new reality is the true one, we are open to learn what it means to act and think like a new person in Christ. So then we come to the word of God and we receive instruction based on who we now are. We have to believe we're a new creature, a new person. Then we can receive instruction. And God's word says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. We enter by the Spirit's help into a lifestyle of prayer, study of Scripture, and meditation upon His Word. And in that place, the Lord teaches us to embrace our new identity. So, so prayer and time in God's Word are critical if we're looking to be truly spiritually transformed. Because here's the thing, if you want to be transformed by the Holy Spirit, you have to be with the Holy Spirit right? It can't just be about you trying to change. You have to spend time with him, and he has to mingle with your soul and do a new work, a fresh work in you and in me. All right, I got one more quote, and, and I got to say, theology is important because right actions flow out of right belief, right? Our fruits will follow our roots. Wherever you're planted, Jesus said, a tree produces according to its kind, so what kind of tree are you? That's an important question. And C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, we all want progress, but progress means getting near to the place where you want to be. And if you've taken a wrong turning, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you are on the wrong, wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. So I want to ask you a question out of that what road do you find yourself on right now? Have you been trying to earn God's grace through your works? Or are you just living life by the Spirit, walking down the pathway that He has for you? Where are you? You may think that you've progressed quite a bit in your Christianity, but for, some, for many people, I think, in our world today, many Christian people, 
What we actually need to do is stop and turn around and go back to the gospel, go back to the basics, and remember who Christ called us to be. Remember what he's declared over us and start pursuing him again. And that's the thing that we need most. Not to keep adding to our knowledge and and adding to our discipline and all these things, but doing so without the Holy Spirit's help. That's going to burn us out eventually, and it has burned a lot of people out. It's probably why a lot of people have left the church. They were never discipled to walk by the Spirit. And so the whole thing was just a big labor that was difficult for them. And, And when they jumped off the ship, they were like, man, my life is a lot easier now. Yeah, because they were trying to do a a spiritual work by the flesh, and that will burn anybody out. God's calling us to do spiritual work by the Spirit. So God, I just want to say, God wants you and I to do something about this today. So I would encourage you, I'm not going to necessarily give you a bunch of action steps. Here's what I want to do. I want to ask you, what did you hear from God through this? Is there some place in your life that God is calling you out and saying, hey, listen, there's a place in your life where, where your spiritual life has been half-baked and that cake needs to go back in the oven. You need to spend more time with the Spirit and you need to cook some more and you need to grow some more in Him based on what He's doing in your life and watch Him do something in your life. What steps is He calling you to do so that you can move in the right direction? How can you actually take these steps? What's your plan? Who can keep you accountable? Who's another believer you trust who can come alongside of you and pray for you and help you do this? I think we need each other, right? The Bible says that we're to teach one another to observe the commands of Christ. That's That's part of the Great Commission. That requires relationship. You can't do that alone. So what is God calling you to take away from this message today? What needs to be renewed in you? You've been listening to the New Covenant Fellowship Sermon Podcast. If God spoke to you or if you'd like us to pray for you, you can email Pastor Nick directly at nick at newcovenantokc.org. If you'd like more information about our church, you may visit us on the web at newcovenantokc.org. We can't wait to hear from you.